Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we're going to tackle a few of the biggest issues in Washington, the looming CBO score of the Build Back Better plan, the freshly signed infrastructure bill, and of course, inflation. To talk about all this, we're joined by AAF President Douglas Holtzakin. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Kyle. Happy to be back. You've been uh, quite a busy guy this week. I mean, you've, you've been on a couple of media hits already, and we have a few more tomorrow. I mean, it seems like it's CBO Rockstar Week for you. Uh, yeah, th- when CBO has a big moment, uh, all the ex-CBO directors have their media hits. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's all that's going on here. Well, awesome. Well, let's jump right into things. Um, we're going to start with inflation today. Um, the Consumer Price Index report for October showed um, that we experienced the highest year-over-year inflation uh, in three decades. Um, would you quickly recap what's driving price spikes on everything from food to to fuel to housing? So in terms of what's going on, uh, it's a combination of things. Yes, there is a, a genuinely transitory bounce back piece, especially in energy prices. Oil prices literally went uh, negative briefly uh, at the, the depths of the recession last spring. And so rebounding from that is sort of a one-time event. Um, and we had some one-time uh, increases in the services sector. So, you know, hotels went up by 10% in a month, and that's a, an unusual usual thing. We have the, the, the supply shortages that you've heard so much about, chips, things like that. That's led to high prices for used autos and, and trucks, things like that. But supply is measured relative to demand. And, and one of the fundamental facts is the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion in March, was just way too much stimulus in an economy that was already growing at 6.5%. And, you know, it has fueled a lot of inflation. And we have seen a steady rise since the passage of that bill in uh, all kinds of measures of inflation. They use the the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, which, by the way, is the one that is relevant for politicians because people pay consumer prices and uh, 50% of their budgets are going to be food, energy, and shelter. And those three items are going up at an annual rate of 7.2% right now. So that's real pain in the in the family budget. And that's what you're hearing so much uh, about in the polling and, and in the public discussion. The Fed has other preferred measures, things like the... the price deflator for personal consumption expenditures based on market transactions. But that's gone from something like 1.9 to 3.5%. So nearly doubling since January. No matter where you look, you've got this upward pressure. It gets coupled with two other factors. Uh, A, wages are rising. And so that's a cost pressure on businesses that they want to pass along to customers. Uh, and, And B, uh, people's expectations of future inflation have risen sharply. And so you go out and you look at uh, some of these uh, labor strikes and people changing jobs. They're doing because they want more money and they're anticipating they need more money because of the inflation. And that this is the early part of that wage price spiral that we experienced in the past. What you hope is that we can nip it in the bud, get back to something that looks like 2% and, and stable inflation. Yeah, because, I mean, it seems like, you know, we have some good economic indicators. I mean, the jobs report last month and, you know, on and on. But, you know, consumers like myself, you know, we go out and see these inflation things. So it makes it it's a drag on the economy right now, it seems like. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of good news out there that uh, in the past two months, for example, payroll growth has averaged about 12 percent at an annual rate. So that's the 
hiring plus hours plus increases in wages, that's a lot of income growth. I mean, most people live off labor income. And if you've got labor income growing at a 12% rate, that's a, a, a real strong foundation for future growth. And I expect the economy, in fact, to, to continue to progress. So that's all good news. But this headline inflation, which people are seeing everywhere, uh, is dampening people's enthusiasm for the economy. Mm-hmm. I want to zero in on one of the one of the phrases you used in your in your in your first answer there, and that's the word transitory. Um, early on, the administration and the Federal Reserve assured Americans um, that this would all be transitory; that inflation was just transitory. Now, you almost never hear anyone use that word um, in news reports or whatever or what have you. Um, do you see prices continuing to rise, holding at the at a high rate? or you know, actually returning to pre-inflation levels? Well, I, I think the reason the word transitory went away is that uh, Fed, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell was asked what transitory means. He goes, well, it's anything that's not permanent. So it's not a particularly useful term, right? It could be two months, two years, two decades, but not right. permanent. So I, I think the most reasonable expectation is, is uh, elevated inflation for a year or two as they try to get it back down to the 2% target. but not something that goes away by spring or this time next year. Gotcha. Um, certainly the White House um, and congressional Democrats feeling the heat on this issue. Um, what what should they be doing? Um, I mean, you're, you're, you're an economist. You've been around policymaking for a while. Um, and what what should they – and then also, you know, on the other side, what should they be not doing um, to get a hold of inflation? Well, I mean, I'll tell you what they are doing. Uh, first and foremost, they are uh, trying to point fingers at other people. So the the president put out a, a commentary on uh, about it was last week on the nuclear unemployment insurance and and the consumer price index coming out. And and in that statement, he said, "And I continue to support an independent Fed to have the ability to combat inflation." So their problem, right? You know, let's let's make it their problem. Um, uh, just uh, today, must have been last night, uh, he, he wrote a letter to the Federal Trade Commission saying, hey, these gas prices, they must be from anti-competitive behavior. Why don't you look into that? So try to try to deflect into other parts of the, the government the pressure on inflation to get it out of the White House. So you're, you're clearly seeing that. In terms of the substance, um, number one, uh, do no further harm. And I think the we'll talk more about the CBO score and the Build Back Better uh, Act, but uh, regardless of what CBO comes up with, in the first year of that bill, everyone gets a tax cut. Uh, in fact, the the most affluent get a very big tax cut because they get rid of the cap on the deductibility of state and local taxes, the so-called SALT deduction. And um, so there's a, a, a big upfront $130 billion tax cut. Uh, we know there's a lot of spending in there. There's $200 billion in uh, child credits and leave alone. And so there's going to be something like, I don't know. $500 billion in stimulus, that's a mistake. This, that's something this economy does not need. And so um, that's not law yet. So they have to go to the Senate. Um, one hopes that they reshape that at a minimum uh, to avoid the inflation push. Yeah. So on that note, let's turn to Build Back Better. Um, yeah. You mentioned the CBO uh, score that's hopefully going to come out. We expect to get the, CB, uh, the CBO Congressional Budget Office is scored by late afternoon tomorrow, um, give or take a, a few hours or, you know, however however long it takes. Many on the left said they didn't need the CBO score when, when they first started debating this bill, but moderates have insisted upon it, um, so we're getting it. But 
the White House is already attacking it even before it's been released. Yeah. Doug, uh, so the what's your reaction to all this? Uh, well, A, uh, this is not new and it's not uniquely uh, Democrat. It's Democrats and Republicans historically um, expecting bad news from CBO. And one of the things you do is you try to devalue the messenger. Uh, it won't work. Um, Congress has spent 40 odd years building up CBO's uh, capabilities, reputation, and uh, it is the, the the gold standard for scoring legislation. So they can complain, but, but they aren't going to dent uh, what people are looking for, which is a high quality uh, analysis of the budgetary implications of this bill. Um, they have, I think, made a mistake by not getting this sooner. Um, certainly they could have said, well, we need to score on this before we turn into a single piece of legislation. Let's get every piece scored as it comes out of committee. They didn't do that. Uh, for a reconciliation bill, they should have. Or before they went to the floor, they should have had it scored. Now it's you know, sort of out there. They're starting the debate today. They still don't have a score. Um, so they will finally get a score. And the thing I think people should appreciate about this is uh, a, it is the CBO and they'll do a good job, but let's put that aside for a second. It is the only time to date that we will see somebody score the actual language that they are voting on, not what they'd like to do, not what they said they did, but what's written down and uh, scores it against a single set of economic and budgetary assumptions. So CBO has a baseline and all the pieces of the bill are going to be scored against that not the ad hoc collection of things we've seen come out of Treasury and think tanks and stuff like that. Uh, and they will take account of the interactions. And the interactions, I think, are real and, and hard. I mean, we've got child tax credits, earning income tax credits, paid family leave, uh, child care subsidies. Where you participate in those has to affect other decisions. And so this is going to be very difficult on things like do people choose to work more or not? And clearly the administration would like to see labor force Participation rise. Will CBO see that? I don't know. There, there's a lot to look look for in here, uh, above and beyond just the did they make the price tag? Yeah. So I mean, but uh, so I mean, you 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 were the CBO director. You've been here, so you've gone through all of this before. Um, and I mean, the backlash just seems like to me. It seems like it's a uh, a manager yelling at a baseball umpire because he didn't like the call at the plate or something like that. And it's and it's and it's happening even before the call is even made. Um, I mean, it seems it seems a little weird, um, but maybe it's 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 happened before. It's happened before. Um, so, you know, my analogy for um, uh, being the CBO director, first of all, you should know that CBO directors get yelled at, complained about, uh, kvetched about um, all the time. And some of the most um, really uh, irate members um, occur for the smaller dollar items. Everyone thinks it's the big decisions. It's not. It's, you know, I had this proposal to have a land swap in my district and CBO said it was $200,000 more than it really is. And I can't get it in the approves bill. And they're just furious because they promised somebody this and they can't get it. So this does, in fact, go on all the time. And, and you, you know, you take it with the job. So you watch sports and, and many people watch, you know, um, a basketball, especially college basketball. And there's always a referee position somewhere near midcourt watching the action. And there's always a coach standing right behind him screaming in his ear. Why? Because he wants to get the next call. And most of what's going on is trying to beat up the CBO director in, in hopes of getting the next call. It won't work, but they're at it. <laughs> Funny enough, uh, my dad was a basketball coach for about the first 12 years of my life. And basically, that was him on the sideline. He, and I always said, Dad, why were you yelling at the rep on that call? And he was like, 
because I'm trying to work them. I want the call, not now in the first quarter, but maybe down in the fourth quarter, I want the call. So, um, so before we do like more of a deeper dive into some of the stuff around, uh, uh, build back better, um, could you just, you know, maybe dispel some of the mystery around CBO who is CBO and what exactly do they score? Um, and maybe why is it such a big deal? Well, uh, who is CBO? CBO is the Congressional Budget Office created in uh, the 1974 uh, Budget Act. Um, the Budget Act came out of a dispute between Congress and uh, then President Nixon. And um, the Congress had appropriated some money. They wanted it spent. Nixon was not spending it. Ultimately, it went to the Supreme Court. And in the aftermath of that fight, they decided, hey, we can't rely on the Office of Manage- Management and Budget, pr- previously the Bureau of the Budget, to tell us what's going on. They, they were just holding on to this money. We need to have our own guys to do budgetary stuff. And we need to, need to have our own capability of creating budgets. We can't rely on the president's budget. That's where all of the information was housed at that point in time. So since then, they now have budget committees in the House and Senate. They have budget process and then we have budget resolutions, which can produce reconciliation instructions. So this all comes from that Budget Act. And we have the Congressional Budget Office, a, a bylaw nonpartisan entity whose job it is to score legislation. That is, answer the question, if we turn this into law, how much more or less will taxes flow into the Treasury and how much more or less will spending flow out? And that's what a score is. It's the answer to the question, what happens year by year over the you know the 10-year budget window at the moment uh, to revenues and spending as a result of this legislation? And, and CBO does this for every piece of legislation that, that Congress considers. Uh, Congress can, of course, waive the requirement to have a CBO score and, and has at many times in the past. But in principle, they're informing Congress prior to any vote. What does this do to the budgetary outlook? So, I mean, based on some of the Democrats pre-reactions this week, um, I, we talked earlier this week about this, about one of the headlines that we saw about 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 it all. Um, it doesn't appear they're anticipating a favorable score for their signature piece of legislation here. If, in fact, it's not what the Democrats had advertised, you know, what they've been pointing to from the White House and all of that, how do you think that will impact the debate over Build Back Better? I don't think it will affect the House vote much, to be honest. Uh, They're pretty far down the road to to taking a vote on this. And if they didn't have the votes to pass it, uh, Speaker Pelosi wouldn't put it on the floor. So um, I don't think it will change votes. It'll change the reception over in the Senate. Um, you know, one of the things that has been at the centerpiece of this is the administration's claim that if they spend 80 billion more on IRS enforcement, they will get 400 billion dollars in otherwise uncollected taxes. And CBO is not going to answer that the 80 billion dollars spending with 400 billion dollars. They're going to their answer is going to be 200 billion or less. Most people think it's going to be in the vicinity of 120. And so you've seen the attacks on CBO's capabilities. They, like, they don't know anything about this. They got this wrong. You know, and the thing to dispel is the notion they don't know anything about this. When I was CBO director in 2003, uh, there was a, a proposal to allow the IRS to hire private collection agencies and to give them 25% of the taxes they went and collected. And the question was, would that score, would that get you more money? My answer was yes, right? You give a strong incentive to get 25 cents on the dollar for people to go out and find uh, uh, unpaid taxes, well, that, that'll work. And so CBO has been at it from before 2003, certainly beginning in 2003, they've been looking at different ways to change collections. So they know a lot about this. 
And they are basing their estimates on the broad research literature and what's sort of the, the middle of the distribution of, of outcomes. The administration is relying heavily on Larry Summers in particular, who is, has a, a, an estimate that's way bigger than everyone else's. And he's saying, well, my research shows we got all this money. Yeah, but other research says you'll get a, a lot less money. And we need to get uh, an estimate that, that reflects all the research, not some uh, one single study. Gotcha. On a slightly different note, um, the news of the score will likely be top line, right? Um, that's what everyone's going to be talking about. That's not whole, yeah, that's not really the whole story. Um, what's what? What about the big new spending programs that the legislation uh, pretends will simply end after two years or so? How how will Americans uh, know what this bill actually costs? So I, I think a good checklist for anyone who's interested in this this topic is the score comes out and, and the first thing you check is, do the taxes match the spending? And they are likely not going to be big enough to cover all the spending. That's what the, the Democrats are beating up CBO about. So it's it's not fully paid for despite their claims that it was. Okay. Now, that means that we're pretending all these programs do actually go away after one, two, three, or four years. A second question you could ask is, Suppose we, instead of stopping and putting in a bunch of zeros for the end, let's just continue those programs. What would it cost, apples to apples, permanent taxes, permanent spending, how big is the mismatch there? That's a second very important question. Uh, third is the timing of these things. As I mentioned, it's heavily front-loaded on spending, heavily back-loaded on taxes. That means that you've got this, this sort of macroeconomic stimulus and inflation push. That's worth checking to see how big that is in CBO's opinion. And then... Underneath all that, there are, there, there are big new expansions here. Um, you know, paid family leave for the first time, childcare subsidies for the first time, uh, a lot of climate provisions. Do they cost what the administration thought? Is this, and if not, why not? Like, are is nobody taking out paid leave? Is everybody taking paid leave? What does CBO think are the, the real policy implications of the bill as well? Interesting. Um, let's move on to uh, infrastructure. Uh, after it feels like years and multiple podcasts, multiple conversations between you and I, earlier this week, the transportation bill was finally signed into law. Um, there was a lot of drama um, before the passage of this bill. So let's close the loop on this conversation. Hopefully, Infrastructure Week is, is, is done. We won't have to talk about this as a policy implications anymore. What will this bill accomplish? What's the good? What's the ugly? In the end... This is about $500 billion of uh, new spending. There's, there's existing transportation programs in there as well. So they, you see this top line total of a trillion or more, but it's about $500 billion in additional spending for hard infrastructure like roads, bridges, ports, water systems, as well as uh, 21st century infrastructure like broadband. There's $80 billion in there for broadband. And there's also EV, char electronic vehicle charging stations and things that the administration is pushing as climate infrastructure. So so there's some things in there that I think are at the edge of plausibility, like, you know, if you've got an electrical electric vehicle industry, they, they, they can build their own charging stations if they want to sell cars. And so I'm not a big fan of that provision. Um, but most of this is sort of core infrastructure. If you look at the way infrastructure affects the economy, um, uh, it's supposed to enhance the productivity of, of workers across the economy, thus raising real wages and the standard of living. Uh, to the extent that it does that, that, that's good news. If you, however, finance it by borrowing and in the process of doing public capital accumulation, you, you knock down private capital accumulation, 
you get a, a net of essentially zero over the long term. So the second thing about this infrastructure bill is that it's about half deficit finance. There's $250 billion of, of new deficits in there. So you'll get some long run beneficial effect, but but relatively modest is my expectation. So you'll see some new infrastructure, you'll see directionally a modest impact, but it won't be dramatic and uh, life will go on. So I, I think the drama will have overwhelmed uh, the, the reality in many cases. Gotcha. Well, um, let's do let's t- cover one final topic today. Um, let's go international for a moment. Uh, the United States joined nearly 200 other countries in Glasgow for the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Um, the summit resulted in the Glasgow uh, Climate Pact, um, to which all participating countries, including the U.S., signed on. Um, what what do people need to know about this? What uh, what does this agreement do? So uh, this was called COP26, and that's fancy lingo for this is the 26th time that that they've had a conference of the parties who signed the original climate change uh, framework um, at the at the United Nations. So they get together once a year. Uh, the rules are that you can uh, have a new climate agreement, the, the, the Glasgow Climate Pact, if everyone unanimously agrees. And so um, that means it's probably not very aggressive. It's probably not particularly binding because that's enough to drive just one party out of agreement. And so getting an agreement is is really part of the kabuki, part of the play. You're going to get a new pact every year. What do they actually do? Well, some, some things that um, seem silly, but in my experience actually matter. They get together and talk. Um, they hear what other people are worried about. They hear what they're doing. There's some genuine sharing of information. And, and if you're going to be, you know, a, a President Xi in China, a President Biden in the United States, and you're going to tiptoe up to a, a binding international agreement on any topic, you have to have developed a fair amount of confidence that you understand the other party. So, that, so there's a lot of sort of uh, uh, diplomacy and information building that goes on. That's probably more important than the actual pact to, to say. The pact itself says, okay, all you countries uh, in the past have made commitments to reduce your emissions. Let's um, uh, agree that we're going to renew our commitments so no one's going to backslide and add them up to see if it's enough. Oops, not enough. We need to, more emissions reductions. What can we commit to in addition? So there are, there are new commitments at, at Glasgow that get um, enough emissions reductions that the scientists say you won't get more than 1.8, 2% centigrade uh, temperature rise. And that that's the goal. So now we have aspirational commitments with no binding way to enforce them from over 200 countries that that stabilize temperatures at, in, a, in a range that people think uh, is sa- safer. So that that's where we are. Um, you know, we saw some little side offshoots, uh, a steel tariff deal between the U.S. and Europe that essentially says, OK, Europe, you can send your steel here without a tariff on it as long as it's green steel, cleaner than stuff that might come from China. So they're trying to roll into the trade world, some some climate considerations. And we saw an agreement to to you know uh, uh, cap methane emissions. Um, the U.S. had moved unilaterally. Had a nice Dan Bosch at AF has a nice piece on the regs surrounding that. Um, so if you're going to do something anyway, let's have a, a global agreement to do it. So we got that as well. So think of think of this as main thing is getting together. They did that. They renewed existing commitments, marginally added new ones. And now they're tiptoeing towards something that's enforceable. 
Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, I, all the commentary around this was, yeah, it was great, but yeah, what are the what are the enforcement mechanisms? There's no, you know, there's no climate change jail or anything like that for 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 when you don't make the the standard. So something we'll have to continue to watch. Doug, thanks for breaking all this down for us. Um, of course, we're entering a huge week of uh, for football coming up. Uh, one of our favorite topics to talk about. Uh, we have not only games this week, but we have our, one of my favorite parts of Thanksgiving, uh, uh, which is watching uh, watching the three games that day. I can't wait for all this. Well, uh, enjoy those. I'm still in mourning over tying the Lions of all people, and so I can't talk about it. No, I was going to be nice and not bring that up. Because <laughs> I, I know how much that hurts you, but you know you brought it up, so. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again doug all right take care i hope you enjoyed this conversation tune back in for our next episode where our experts will provide clear data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues i'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about aaf don't forget to subscribe on itunes spotify or google play